Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. I think what I didn't realise when I got into ministry would, was just how much suffering I would experience, not just in my own life, but in the lives of the people around me. And even coming to this particular church, we're in our sixth year now, when we came here, we came from Doncaster. Doncaster was an ageing population and a very Anglican population. So I spent, naturally spent a lot of my time doing funerals. Um, and when I came here, I thought, I'm going to have a rest from that now because this place is Catholic, not Anglican, and it's young, not old. And the truth is, I haven't done hardly any funerals since I got here, and yet I've still been constantly exposed to the suffering of God's people in a way that I, I, I just wasn't prepared for. And my role gives me kind of a, a special front row seat to so much of the suffering of God's people, and I count it as a privilege, but there is a cost incurred. You know, Paul has that beautiful analogy of the, the church being like Christ's body, and if that's true, and I think it is, then the truth is that parts of Christ's body are constantly in pain. He's constantly experiencing pain because his people who are members of his body, are constantly suffering. And it's not just in the context of this church that we, we see suffering. Obviously, all you have to do is watch the news for five consecutive minutes to see what's going on. And with the 24-hour news cycle and trending stuff online and social media, we are constantly barraged with the reality of the brokenness of this world. So I did a little search. I went to one of those, you know, on this day websites and I pulled up May 21 and, um, and this is what I read. On this day in 1917, a fire destroyed approximately 2,000 homes in the city of Atlanta in the USA. In 1991, former Indian Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated near the city of Madras. In 1998, Kiplan Kinkle a, uh, a student at Thurston High School in Springfield, Oregon, fired a semi-automatic rifle into a classroom, killing two students and wounding 25 others. Earlier in the day, he had murdered his parents in their home. And on 2000, in 2003, an earthquake hit northern Algeria, killing more than 2,000 people. And we're so used to hearing these things that we can posture ourselves in such a way that they wash over us. But as soon as you consider, even for a moment, 2,000 people asphyxiated under rubble in northern Algeria, you can't help but ask the question that we've been asked this morning. It's the question that I've been asked more often than any other question in the last decade of ministry, and that is, how, how can a good God allow this? 
how can there be a good God who witnesses the asphyxiation of 2,000 men, women, and children? How can he be good and see it happen without stopping it from happening? Where is God in this broken world? The rest of our time together this morning is going to be addressing this question. I'm going to speak to it from what I believe God has revealed to us in the Bible. Sarah Young, who is singing this morning, is going to come up and share her own experience of horrific suffering. And then we're going to do some Q&A after we sing. Uh, And those questions are going to be asked by you this morning. So if you've got questions that come up as we're talking, then you can text it to uh, a number that will come up on the screen throughout So where is God in the midst of our suffering? This is a question that was posed very publicly after September 11th. America is ostensibly a Christian nation, and so when this happened on their soil, the question naturally came, where was God? And it was asked in different ways by different people. But I was particularly drawn this week to an article that was written in the New York Times not long after September 11th, and it was written by a guy named Peter Steinfels, and he wrote this. Where was God on September 11th? It's an inevitable, a necessary, and a valuable question. It is also an odd one. Where was God, after all, on September 10, when tens of thousands of parents, as on every day, watched their malnutrition or malnourished infants expire, when drunken drivers, as on every day, smash their cars into innocence, when in Africa, as on every day, more people died of AIDS than were killed in the Twin Towers, and when traitorous arteries and rebellious brain cells, as on every day, stifled vibrant personalities into silence and stupor, where was God on any number of days since September 11th? That's what we're dealing with this morning. That's what we're dealing with. And my aim this morning is not to dodge it. I found this week that the easiest way to deal with this question is just to change the Bible's answer. The easiest way to deal with this question is just through a series of rhetorical gymnastics, dodge the question altogether but that's not what you had in mind when you asked it. So I found in my research this week that often the response of Christians is to try and attempt to get God off the hook. Peter Steinfels has just put God on the hook, and our first attempt sometimes is to get him off the hook. But I found that that is an inadequate response to the legitimacy of people's pain. So let's look at a couple of ways that we can try and get God off the hook. Number one, one way that people try and get God off the hook is by saying this, God gave us free will. He can't stop us from sinning. It's a very popular response. God gave us free will, therefore he cannot stop us. He cannot curb our free choices. 
The problem with this response is that it's nowhere to be found in the Scriptures. And if we're going to use God's Word as our primary, uh, primary source of truth, then we need to find our responses to questions like these in His Word. And it's simply not there. This is not to diminish the very real agency that people have in committing acts of evil. Why did the plane slam into the towers? Because the men determined that they would do it. They acted out of their nature. All of us do. We are sinners by nature and by choice and we act out of that nature. But to say that God cannot stop us from doing this or that evil act is simply not to be found in God's Word. This is the great mystery. The mystery is that God can stop us from doing evil and yet He still holds us responsible for that evil. So we get a little case study in this in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham and Sarah are moving through the nations They've received God's promise that from them will come this great nation that God would call his own, his elect people, the people of Israel, and they're waiting and waiting and waiting on his promise to be fulfilled. And every day that they live without that promise being fulfilled, without Sarah being pregnant, then God's promise is under threat. And earlier in the story, we saw how it was under threat when they were in Egypt, and Pharaoh liked the look of Sarah because she was beautiful. And so Abraham came up with this plan, though I'll, I'll just say that she's my sister and then he won't kill me and then God's promise might be preserved and somehow he'll get us through this and one day she'll conceive my son. And then he goes with that plan again when he comes into the Negev. This is what it says. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Right? God's promise is under threat. If he takes her and he has her as one of his many wives and he impregnates her, then God's promise fails. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, that is, he hadn't slept with her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. God is absolutely capable of restraining our wickedness and evil. He is no respecter of men's freedom. So simply to get God off the hook by saying, well, we're free agents and he's in heaven saying, I wish this wasn't happening, but uh, that, that's not an accurate picture of the reality of things. God is able to prevent evil from happening and he chooses not to. That's the question. 
Why? Apart from that, that standard response doesn't deal with the 2,000 dead as a result of the earthquake. It wasn't anyone's free will that caused that disaster. So another way that people attempt to get God off the hook is by saying the devil, not God, is responsible for suffering. We have this sort of dualist picture that God is good and does good and the devil is evil and does evil and they're at war with each other and sometimes Satan lands a punch on Jesus' chin that he just can't stop. He can get his fists up in time. And one of the primary places that we see Satan at work and Satan is at work and Satan does tempt us to sin and Satan is hell-bent on the destruction of God's people. And one of the ways that we, one of the clearest examples we see of this is in the book of Job, right? In the book of Job, we have this righteous man, Job, enjoying God's blessing. Thousands of animals, which in that day was a sign of wealth and prosperity. Sons and daughters, happy marriage, And Satan comes before God and says, and God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Job says, yeah, he loves you, but of course he does. Who wouldn't love you if they had all that he does? Give me a bit of time with Job and we'll see how much he loves you. God says, okay, you can have him. Just don't touch his body. And then in a couple of the most cataclysmically terrible chapters in the Bible, we see Job, Job's progeny get it taken down one at a time. All of his sheep and his camels are destroyed by enemies, along with the, his servants. And then as his children feast in a hall on a faraway hill, a wind of God and a fire of God come and destroy that place and all of his children are taken from him. And as he reels with the magnitude of what has just happened, he says this. Job 1.20 At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the writer of Job expects our response. He expects our objection. He expects us to stand up and say, no, 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 Job, you don't understand. You didn't see what was going on in heaven before this happened. It was Satan who did this. Satan is the cause of this. Don't say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The Lord gave and Satan has taken away. And the writer interprets and and expects our protestations. And so he adds, verse 22, in All this Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
He didn't sin. He didn't get it wrong. He wasn't mistaken. I read an article this week by a famous Bible scholar. He has written a commentary on every New Testament book of the Bible. Few have ever done that. And yet, his commentary on this passage was that Job was mistaken. Job got it wrong. It wasn't God, it was Satan. He simply failed to read the next verse, it seems like. Or the reality of the situation is too much for him to come to terms with. And so he seeks to get God off the hook by saying that it's Satan and not God, but Job just won't have it that way. Again, in chapter 2, verse 9 to 10, after Job's, Job, God has allowed Satan actually to get at Job's body and he's covered with boils and sores and he's scratching them with pieces of pottery. His wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And sometimes we're a bit harsh on her, but she has just witnessed the death of all of her children. Curse God and die, she says. And he replies, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And again, the writer says, just to make sure we understand, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So it's simply insufficient to say, God gives us good stuff, Satan gives us the rest. Third way, often we say God allows suffering, but he doesn't cause it. God allows suffering and he doesn't cause it, and I am much more comfortable in saying God allows suffering, but he doesn't cause it. In that way, we still get to maintain that God uses suffering for our good, and I've said this myself many times, and at certain points it's been relevant, but we can't say this explains every experience that we have of suffering. It simply won't suffice. It's insufficient. Sometimes God does cause suffering. He is the primary agent. I've got a stack of passages here, and if you want a copy of them to go through yourself, I would be well pleased. Here's what the Bible says. God works all things after the counsel of his will. I won't read the, the references. Ah, yes, I will. It's important. God works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. This all things includes the fall of sparrows, Matthew 10.29, the rolling of dice, Proverbs 16.33, the slaughter of his people, Psalm 44.11, the decision of kings, Proverbs 21.1, the failing of sight, Exodus 4.11, the sickness of children, 2 Samuel 12.15, the loss and gain of money, 1 Samuel 2.7, the suffering of saints, 1 Peter 4.19, the completion of travel plans, James 4.15, the persecution of Christians, Hebrews 12.4-7, the repentance of souls, 2 Timothy 2.25, the gift of faith, Philippians 1.29, the pursuit of holiness, Philippians 3.12-13, the growth of believers, Hebrews 6.3, the giving of life and the taking in death, 1 Samuel 2.6, and the crucifixion of his son, Acts 4, 27 to 28. 
it's not enough for us to say that God doesn't cause suffering, he simply allows it. The Bible simply won't let us draw that as a sufficient conclusion, a sufficient explanation. And so you'll notice as we go into this, I'm digging us deeper into the hole, not attempting to get us out of it. Peter Kreeft, I'm going to quote another couple of times before we're done. And by the way, I just I realize that I'm just going to be going longer than we normally go this morning. Oh well. Peter Kreeft says this. Some say that the gods, that to the gods we are like flies that boys idly swat on a summer day. Others say that not a feather from a sparrow falls to the ground without the will of the Heavenly Father. Those are the only two options. If God is God, and He is God by definition, all-powerful, all-knowing, then those are your two options. You don't have an option where God is powerless because we are so powerful, powerful, more powerful than Him. You only have the option that he is either like one of the arbitrary gods of the Greeks who swats at us like a boy swats a fly, or you have the God of the Lord Jesus who told us that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from him. So in my experience, there are two types of people who ask this question. Two types of people ask the question, how can a good God allow suffering? The first is the one who is asking it theoretically. It's the philosopher. It's the one who asks it in an abstract sense. And for that person, the shape of the question often takes a a classical kind of philosophical argumentative form. And so we have the theoretical question, if you go over the page, there we go. It goes something like this, one, if God exists, then God is omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect. That is, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and morally perfect. Number two, if God is omnipotent, then God has the power to eliminate all evil. Number three, if God is omniscient, then God knows when evil exists. Number four, if God is morally perfect, then God has the desire to eliminate evil. Number five, evil exists. Number six, if evil exists and God exists, then either God doesn't have the power to eliminate all all evil or doesn't know when evil exists or doesn't have the desire to eliminate all evil. Number seven, therefore God doesn't exist. That is a logically cogent argument. And so that's the question that is posed by those who are asking it in this question in the abstract. They want to know theoretically. They want to pull this thing apart logically. And I think there are really good answers to that. That question. First of all, the question itself limits our response. So this is a thing that people will do, philosophers will do. It's a little trick. You narrow the field to a, I don't know, this is a quad lemma or whatever it is, and, and then you can predict the answer, you can shape the answer, you can determine the answer. All we have to do is introduce another factor into the question and we get 
we have more wiggle room as people who are defending God's goodness. But I think the best answer to the question is this one. The best response is this. If God were to have a morally sufficient reason for allowing evil, it would be possible for God to be omnipotent, omniscient, and morally perfect, and yet for there to be evil and suffering. So all we have to do is understand ourselves in the context that we actually find ourselves in. That is, God is creator, we are creation, he is unlimited, we are limited, we cannot know the depths of his reasoning, and therefore it is possible for him to have morally sufficient, that is morally good reasons for allowing the suffering that he allows, even for causing the suffering that he causes. And therefore, all of those statements about God can be true, and therefore the logical argument falls apart. Here's why I've only spent two minutes addressing this question. I just don't care about it. I just don't care if you're here this morning, and that's your question. That's the nature of your question. If you're, the nature of your question this morning is the abstract theoretical one. Great to have you with us, but I just don't care. The question I want to address is the experiential one. It's the question that someone asks, not out of some kind of abstract philosophical state, but from experience, from the depths of suffering that many of you, if not all of you, have experienced or will experience. That's what I want to know. I want to know the answer to that question. I want to address that question. And so the experiential question, in contrast to the Theoretical one is, why did my husband leave me? Why did my mum die of cancer? Why did my child die? That's the question. To hell with the theoretical, right? That's the question that I encounter from day to day. It's the question that is asked out of the experience of the deepest possible suffering. So Peter Kreeft, again, out of his book, Making Sense of Suffering, says this, to question God's goodness is not just an intellectual experiment. It is a little child with tears in its eyes looking up at Daddy and weeping. Why? This is not merely the philosopher's why. It is asked in the context of relationship. It is a question put to the father, not a question asked in a vacuum. The hurt child needs not so much explanations as reassurances. That's the truth. And so I want to speak to the little children who are here today. The little children who, through tears, are looking up at their father and asking why. And I make no guarantees about being able to offer a whole lot of explanations. But I hope what I do have is a whole lot of reassurance. The peak of my own experience of suffering was as a boy just turned eight, leaning over the bed to kiss my mother who had just passed away. That's the peak of my experience of suffering. Kissing her on the cheek and on the lips and experiencing 
for the first time, zero reciprocity. And that peak experience has not diminished with time. It has echoed with time and still echoes to this day. And my experience says that I can trust God's wisdom in taking my mother from me, but I don't know why it happened. I can trust God's wisdom in taking my mother from me. My response to the reality of her death is not to attempt to get God off the hook somehow. I believe that God consciously and purposefully took her life. I believe that no one dies apart from God's will. No one dies before or after God's determination. And so God says in Deuteronomy 32, See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal and no one can deliver out of my hand. When God makes these statements about himself in the Old Testament, it almost always unsettles us. C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is not a tame lion. And whenever we try and get him off the hook, we often put him on a leash. I just coined that phrase, I like that. Whenever we try and get him off the hook, we put him on a leash. We try and make him a tame lion and he will not be tamed. He says, I am God, there is no other. He says in Isaiah 55, I know the end from the beginning. I will achieve my purposes in all things. So what, what, what I need as I come to terms again and, and again and again, 28 years later, when I come to terms again with the reality of my mother's death, and I wrestle, here's the, here's the truth, I do wrestle with this. I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over, over all things, including the timing and the nature of her death as she wastes in front of me, wastes away. Oh, that she was hit by a bus. That God is sovereign over not just the timing, but the process of her death doesn't mean that I don't wrestle with the reality. I'm telling you, every time that I have a season of struggle in my marriage or in my parenting, I think to myself, this would This would be easier for me to deal with if my mum was here. And so, I'm telling you, what I don't need from you is some kind of attempt 
to rescue God from his agency. What I need is reassurance. I need need reassurance that he is good, that he is loving, and that he is enough. I need reassurance that Job is right, that when things are taken from us, God fills the emptiness, that God is enough. I need to hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Please memorize this. He says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. So often this is how we are when we experience grief. We become senseless. And in our understandable senselessness, in our brutishness, that's when we come up with these ideas of getting God off the hook. That's when we shake our fist at him and impugn him and say, if this is the way things are going to be, then you're not worth worshipping. There was an avalanche of people in the US after the Twin Towers happened who said, if this is what God is like, then he's not worth worshipping. And the psalmist says, that's what I'm tempted to be when I'm grieved. But... He goes on, yet, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom, and I, whom, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, I have nothing besides you, or I desire nothing besides you. My flesh and my heart and my mum's health may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, God is enough. So my experience and the Revelation of God's word tells me that I can trust God's wisdom in the, in the midst of suffering, even though I don't know why it happens. And this is precisely what God tells us. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, this is what he says, The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. That we may follow all the words of his law. The reality is that there is much that we don't know and cannot understand. Those secret things of the Lord, they are not a few things. They are probably the majority of things in the universe. And they belong to God. In Reformed theology, we have this understanding that there is the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And the secret will of God is not known to us. We cannot know it. It's beyond our ability to understand. 
The secret things belong to the Lord. The reason for whether, whether it's my, my mum dying or the Twin Towers coming down or the earthquake consuming 2,000 people in northern Algeria in 2003, the reason for these things belongs to the Lord. The revealed things, that is what he has made known to us in his word, are ours. That's why we must be tethered to the scriptures. Otherwise, we will go off and make our own assumptions and resolutions about this or that thing. We must only ever say what God has said, what God has revealed to us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Remember, mirrors in his day were very murky. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Friends, we just don't know why so much of pain and suffering in this world happens. But we do know that we can trust him. I really, really like the illustration that Corrie ten Boom came up with, I think she was the one who, who first imagined it. Corrie ten Boom, if you don't know, she was uh, a Dutch resident in, during the, the Nazi occupation of Holland. She was there when the Nazis came through and started just taking Jewish people and killing them, shipping them off to Auschwitz. And her and her family stood against what the Nazis were doing, even though they had nothing themselves to fear. They were well-known, wealthy family. They stood against it and they started to house Jews. They, they came up with a plan to build into the walls little secret hiding spots and, and they would put Jewish people in there so that they could survive, they could escape the Nazi occupation and the death camp. And as a result, her and her family were imprisoned. And so this woman suffered for doing what was right. And out of the abundance, the overflow of her experience of suffering, she came up with this illustration. She said, and she wrote it in a poem, which I'll quote in a minute, but she said, you know, God is like a master weaver weaving a tapestry through all of human history. I don't know anything about tapestries, but I do know that if you look at the back of a tapestry, it's just a mess, right? There's just threads going everywhere, complete anarchy. But as you look at the front, there is a beautiful and coherent and complete picture put together by the artist. And she said, as humans, we, see, we only see the chaos. We only see the anarchy. We only see threads all over the place, but God sees the entire picture from eternity past to eternity future. And so she wrote this poem. I'll just quote a few lines. She said, my life, remember her life, considerable suffering. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. 
That's the reality of our experience of suffering. And we need to keep that in mind as we come to terms with it. We must maintain the truth that we see the reverse, but God sees the picture. If we try and bring him down to the point where all he can see is anarchy, then not only do we rob God of his sovereignty, not only do we diminish what he has revealed to us in his word, but we rob ourselves of the only hope we have. What hope do you have if God doesn't know the future? What hope do you have if God's hands are tied? You have no hope. Don't pray to that God. So the secret things are for the Lord. The revealed things are for us. What can we know about what God has revealed? About four things, all right? And then we're just about done. Here's what we can know about suffering. Number one, our suffering, our suffering can bring glory to God. You remember Jesus in John chapter 9? His disciples ask him as they come across a man who is born blind. So this is not the result of his free will, right? This is happening before he's done anything. He's born blind. And God reveals to us in the scriptures, I blind and I give sight. So the question comes from the disciples, from their own limited scope. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? that he was born blind. That's another one of our inadequate explanations of why suffering happens. That's exactly, remember, that's what Job's friends tried to tell him as he scraped the boils from his flesh. They tried to tell him, here's the law of the universe. If you're suffering, it means you've done something wrong. It's what most people around us in our culture believe to be the law of the universe, right? Karma will get you. What goes around comes around. If you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong in the past. It's another one of our inadequate explanations for suffering. Because Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sin. It's not about sin. It's not about retribution. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This was for God's glory, so that I could heal him and that he could praise God and worship him for his deliverance. Remember Paul before, before God on his knees, I just imagine him pleading. You hear about this, remember? Remember? He's got this thorn in the flesh. We don't know if it's cancer or Satan or an enemy, but he's got a thorn in the flesh and he's pleading with God. Three times I pleaded with him and said, take this thorn from me. And God says, no. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul's response was not, well, that's not fair. I have to go through all this suffering so that your power can be displayed. No, Paul was so 
so committed to magnifying the glory and power of the Lord Jesus that he was a willing participant in God's plan for his suffering. Again in John chapter 11, again Jesus says, he comes to these women that he loves, Mary and Martha, and and their brother Lazarus, one of Jesus' best friends, is sick. And the word comes to him from them, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. God can be glorified in our suffering. Number two, our suffering can bring good to us. Yes, our suffering can bring glory to God, but our suffering can also bring good to us. And one of the most famous examples of this is in Genesis chapter 50. You remember the story of Joseph. You remember his acute suffering, being sold into slavery by his own brothers. And not just the experience of suffering in slavery, but also false imprisonment. Remember? Potiphar's wife likes the look of him, wants to sleep with him. In his flesh, he might have wanted to reciprocate. But he's been in slavery for a long time. But, you know, at least this is be a bit of pleasure for once. She's the one approaching me. I'm not going to get in trouble for this. And yet because he's God's man, he resists and resists and resists to the point where she gets angry, accuses him of trying to sleep with her, and so he's imprisoned, and not for a short time. And so he goes through one season of suffering after another, and then after it's all done and God has vindicated him, he says these timeless words. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He sees, just for an instant, the other side of the tapestry. He sees how God has been weaving all of his sufferings for his good and the good of those he loves. And often this is the case, that God will use our suffering for our good, and more than that, we have the beautiful promise of Paul in Romans chapter 8 that this is exactly what does and will happen. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Are you loved by God? Have you been called by God? Then you can have this sure and certain hope that God will work all things. You mean just the good things? No, all things for your good. Third thing that's revealed for us. Our suffering will come to an end. And some call this the great Christian kind of pie in the sky when you die, right? Well, well, yeah, life sucks now, but just think about, you know, happiness in heaven and if we just reduce it to that, you know, life sucks now, but one day you'll be happy, then yeah, that is, that's, that's, that's a fairy tale. 
that's not, that's not what the biblical writers are calling us to when they talk about this. They acknowledge the depths of our suffering, but they contrast it with the greatness of the glory that will be revealed to us. So Paul says this in a couple of ways. Stay with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You say, well, Paul's just diminishing my suffering. He doesn't know what I've been through. Light momentary suffering. How dare he? Really? Do you know what this guy's been through? From the moment he confessed Christ to his martyrdom, his life was one long bout of suffering. And not only did the suffering happen to him, but he willingly walked into it. Remember, in the book of Acts, they are beaten, beaten within an inch of their lives for preaching the Bible. And once they're well enough, they get up, walk out of the city, and then walk back in and start preaching again. It's willingly submission to suffering. And so through a litany of pain, he says, light, momentary affliction. Why? Why is it light? Why is it momentary, even though it's devastatingly heavy? Well, because he's contrasting it with the eternal weight of glory. That's what makes it beyond all comparison. And so he promises us that this, there will be a day that's coming where this suffering will cease, and it's going to be so glorious that the present suffering will seem like nothing in comparison. He says, similar in Romans 8, 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And then John gives us that beautiful picture of ultimate restoration, Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This present suffering will cease and it ought to motivate us to persevere in the midst of it. And the last thing, number four, God's suffering, God's suffering, God's suffering proves his goodness his sovereignty, and his love. All of the things that are caused, called into question by our own suffering, his goodness, his sovereignty, and his love, all of it is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt when he suffers. This is the great and incredible and cataclysmic view, um, truth of Christianity. Not only do we suffer, but God himself has suffered. So as God sometimes brings suffering into our lives, he brought it into the life of his own son, Isaiah 53.10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. God, God didn't just allow the suffering of his son, but he caused it. And what that tells us 
is Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. That's the definition of love. The definition of love is that Christ died for us. Christ died for us according to the sovereign will of God. And because God himself has suffered, therefore he is able to suffer with us and able to understand what we're going through. Last quote from Peter Kreef. We began with the mystery not just of suffering, but of suffering in a world supposedly created by a loving God. How to get God off the hook? God's answer is Jesus. Jesus is not God off the hook, but God on the hook. That the cross itself is a hook. How can we trust that God is good in the midst of our suffering? God himself has suffered in our place. And it happened according to the perfect, sovereign will of God. And so, when I find myself in the midst of suffering and pain, I will wrestle, I will cry, I will doubt, but I will do it in the presence of a loving Father and in the company of a nail-pierced Saviour. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Whom have we in heaven but you? And earth has nothing we desire besides you. Our flesh and our heart and our health and our children, and our finances, and our world may fail. But God is the strength of my heart, and our portion forever. May it be so. In Jesus' name. Sarah's going to come and share with us now. I I just made an executive decision. I think we're just going to finish our service um, with some praise. So um, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you a minute of silence because that seems like the right thing to do. Yeah, and then these guys are going to sing a song for us, which is 
amazing that Sarah could share what she just shared and then sing the song that she's about to sing is a testament again to God's grace. We're going to sing a song, we're going to listen, and we're all going to stand and sing a great old hymn about trusting God in the midst of our suffering, and then we're just going to finish. Um, I'm not going to do the Q&A this morning. I will get to your questions. We'll, I'll, tomorrow morning, I'll, I'll make a video, I'll put it on Facebook, and I'll make it available to us. But my sense is that God doesn't so much want us to pursue explanation, but lamentation. The church used to be good at lament. We're not that good at it anymore. 